Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. We're reflecting this morning as we prepare to take communion on the truth that God loves us and He does seek to touch us and to have a relationship with us. Leprosy in the Scriptures is a fitting analogy of what sin does to people in terms of the fact that it contaminates them. It doesn't matter how good of a person you are, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as a result of that, God being pure, being holy, has to do something to remove our sin from us so that we can enter into His presence without defiling Him. And in a very real way, that's what leprosy is to these people in this day and age. To have leprosy is to have a disease that is so infectious, so contagious, it separates you from people. And so God is going to encounter a leper as he comes down off the mountain. As he finishes his sermon on the mount, he's coming down, and we're going to see in chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, Jesus encountering the leper. So if you would, please read with me. Matthew chapter 8, 1 to 4. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Would you please bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that your son dying on the cross has paid the penalty we owe and further, Lord, has cleansed us and made us white as snow. We thank you, Father, for giving us clean and righteous lives, and we pray that you would continue your work of transformation in our hearts. Father, I pray that as we draw near this morning to partake of communion, to join together as a body, to symbolically demonstrate our union with each other and our union with you, Lord. I pray, Father, that you, Lord, would just continue to mold us as a people into the image of your Son. Thank you so much for loving us. We love you. Show us this morning, Lord, what it means to be a part of the community of worshipers. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Fyodor Dostoevsky in his Russian novel, The Brothers Karamazov, has a powerful statement regarding the nature of love. For all of us in this room, it's really easy to say we love people when people is an abstract concept far away. It's much, much more difficult and much, much more challenging when people, the abstract concept, becomes a person right in front of you. There's a lady who's confessing her inability to love, and she comes to this character in this book, the Brothers Karamazov, and she begins to confess her struggles with a particular priest, an individual by the name of Father Zosima. And his response to her goes like this, I too love mankind, but I am amazed at myself. The more I love mankind in general, the less I love people in particular. That is, individually, as separate persons. In my dreams, I often went so far to think passionately of serving mankind, and it may be would really have gone to the cross for people if it were somehow suddenly 
necessary. And yet I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone even for two days. This I know from experience. As soon as someone is there close to me, his personality oppresses my self-esteem and restricts my freedom. In 24 hours, I can begin to hate even the best of men. One, because he takes too long eating his dinner. Another, because he has a cold, keeps sniffling and blowing his nose. I become the enemy of people the moment they touch me. I become the enemy of people the moment they touch me. On the other hand, it has always happened that the more I hate people individually, the more ardent becomes my love for humanity as a whole. You know, it's easy to talk about things in the abstract, loving people in the abstract. I love people, I care about people, but you know, next thing you know, you've got somebody standing right next to you who is slightly irritating or annoying you or has some particular habits that you just find particularly loathsome. And God calls you not to love people in the abstract, but to love people individually in the moment. And so we see here, Jesus has just preached a really great sermon. He's gone, on, he's gone up on the mountaintops, and he has preached to the masses about what true blessedness is, what true happiness looks like. And he comes down off of that mountain, and the question becomes, will Jesus live out the sermon that he so eloquently just finished preaching? The verse begins in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, he came down from the mountain, and it says, great crowds followed him. Again, he's got a whole sea of humanity gathered around him, and he has just preached to them in general. What is going to happen when he encounters people in particular? Very next verse, behold, there is a leper that comes to him. Now, for you and me, we're just reading this, and it's just like, okay, Jesus comes down off the mountain, and now look, there's a leper. But that word, behold, that should contain significant meaning to you. You see, in this day and age, lepers were the absolute outcast of society. It's not necessarily that they were hated, but you might as well have described your response to them as one of hatred. We don't know exactly what this disease of leprosy looked like. Uh, diseases tend to mutate and morph and change over time. And so it's been 2,000 years since this individual approached Christ. We can't know with absolute certainty what this particular disease would have looked like, but more than likely it would have had striking resemblance to our modern-day Hansen's disease, which is an infection that begins to attack your nervous system. In fact, most people think that it's a gruesome, painful, horrific way to die, but the truth is when you have leprosy, you don't really feel much of anything. In fact, that's the nature of the wounds that you inflict upon yourself. It attacks your nervous system. It also begins to attack your skin, but it attacks your nervous system in such a way that you don't feel your skin. You can inflict wounds upon yourself, and your body doesn't tell you that you've just injured yourself. You can go along for a day or half a day just working away, and that wound will fester and get infected and begin to swell. And in normal situations, that would be quite painful, and you'd become aware of that. But to the leper, they never sense it. They never know that they've been wounded. Leprosy, though painless, was still quite painful. It was a disease that killed you many times before you ultimately died. As I said, 
it was incredibly contagious. And so the moment you were diagnosed with leprosy, you were immediately cut off from your family, from your loved ones, from everybody you cared about, your neighbors, people you worked with. It was required in the Old Testament law that as the priest declared a man to have leprosy, he was considered unclean. And he was required to be separated from the rest of the community. He had to live out of town. And so the first death that you begin to die is the realization that you will never, ever get to hug your loved ones ever again. They will never get to hug you. There will be no more kisses with your children as you tuck them into bed at night. There will be no more snuggling on Christmas morning when you get up and open gifts. There will be no more family time. From the moment you present yourself to the priest and he looks at the infection in your skin and declares you unclean, there's no going home, there's no packing a bag, there are no final goodbyes. You never see your loved ones ever again. That's the first death you die. In fact, one of the reasons why this disease was so epidemic in Jesus' time is because people knew all too well what was going to happen if they were diagnosed. And so they see a little rash on their skin. I don't like going to the doctor as it is. So imagine wanting to not go to the priest, fearing the inevitable and denying it for as long as possible. And in that process of denying it, you are exposing everyone else around you. The first death you die is you lose your family and your neighbors and your community. The second death you die is in your soul. As you are cast out of a religious society that talks a lot about the greatness and the power of God, you remove yourself from that society and you enter into the company of individuals who are more often than not very angry, very cynical, very bitter about what's happened to them. Why me, God? What did I ever do to deserve this? You find yourself day in and day out in the company of people who are angry, who constantly talk bad about the world around them. They feel victims. They feel victimized. They feel unfairly treated. And so this sort of attitude and disposition of anger and rage just begins to simmer and boil more often than not in the leper's soul. Eventually, everything is a personal offense. Everything is a personal slight. And even though they do have some sort of community living within lepers' colonies with each other, they grow very irritated and very angry with each other. It's not a peaceful place to live. But the third death you die is you lose all hope. You embrace despair. Every morning when you wake up in your leper's colony, the faces that greet you bear a reminder of what you have to look forward to as you observe those with more advanced cases literally falling apart before your very eyes. And even though you may not be as bad or as advanced as they are at this stage, every morning when you get up to cook breakfast or have some sort of a meal together, you just look in their face and you see exactly what you have to look forward to. Every day brings a new horror as different parts of people's faces and arms and legs are starting to fall off. You know that's going to be you soon. But perhaps most significantly, you can't go to church anymore. 
and you can't worship anymore. You're barred from the temple, and you're denied access to the one who claims to have power to heal you. For Jews in Jewish society, they would see these people at a distance, and they were required biblically to yell out, unclean, unclean, and most people cut a wide path. And it's a common prayer in this day and age as you are walking to the marketplace or you are going to the temple and you happen to observe some lepers in the distance yelling out, unclean, unclean, you would pray silently, please God, keep me safe from that, anything but that. Undoubtedly, that's the same prayer that these guys prayed. And so you, here you have a leper. He's not necessarily a bad man. He isn't any more of a sinner than you or I. And he has prayed two different prayers over the course of his life. He's prayed, number one, God, please keep me from that disease. And then the second prayer he has prayed, God, please, in your mercy and in your grace, heal me from this disease. And of course, God had done neither. Wait. Wait a minute. There's a rumor that there's a guy up in Galilee that can heal anything, that can cure anything, that can do anything. It seems a long shot at best, but hey, everybody's going up to Galilee, and you hear the rumor on the street, this guy can cure you, he can heal you, he's curing diseases, he's healing the blind, he's restoring hearing to the deaf, he's raising paralytics from their bed. Why not? What else have I got to do but sit here and die? And so this guy, even though he has prayed repeatedly, God, heal me from this disease, and even though God hasn't yet done it, maybe, just maybe, there's a hope in Jesus Christ. And so he comes. And you know what? His hope is well-founded and well-rewarded. He comes close to the group on the mountain. There's a huge sea of humanity. Jesus is in the distance. He can't even quite see him, but he just sort of hears the words just sort of echoing across the multitude as the whole crowd is sitting there listening to him. He hears Jesus saying, build your house on my word and your house will stand. Don't build your house on my word and your house will fall. And he thinks, this man, could he be? Is it possible that he just might be the Messiah? He's claiming divine authority. Now, we've seen one great miracle in the deliverance of Israel, the parting of the Red Sea. I dare say we've seen it twice. Because as this crowd is coming down off the mountain and the leper approaches, this sea of humanity, I'm telling you right now, as he came near, they would have gone, and they would have parted. It would have been no problem getting to Jesus. He just comes walking up, and I tell you, everybody in that room in that moment, everybody on the mountaintop in that mount moment would have just scattered, gotten out of his way. He's got the disease we don't want. And it says in verse 2, behold, look. Now, if you're a Jewish reader of Matthew's gospel, and you have familiarity, and you've observed and seen lepers' colonies, and you know the horror, and you understand the disease, when Matthew says, idu, which is the Greek word for look, this is a powerful expression. It's not like, oh, and by the way, there came a leper. It's like, you're not going to believe this. There comes a leper. And so immediately, if you're a Jewish reader reading this, it sticks out to you. Jesus preaches a sermon, and bam, there's a leper. And you're like, whoa, wait a second. You know, and immediately in your gut, if you're reading this book, you know there's incredible danger facing this crowd. He comes against all social custom, against all what would be pr proper conduct. He comes into the crowd. The crowd splits like the Red Sea. He comes to Jesus and it says in verse 2, look at this. He says, he came to him and knelt before him, gets down on his knees, and he says, 
Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. No demand. No, hey, if you're so good, why don't you make me clean? No sarcastic, cynical sort of demand. All of the anger and all of the bitterness that is common to lepers is not evident in this individual. He's not demanding healing. He's not saying, you owe me this. I'm a good guy. I've never done anything wrong. Why am I sick like this? He comes and he surrenders himself. I want you to notice a couple of things here. First, he comes. That's wrong, but he wants to come and see Jesus. And so he approaches through the crowd. The crowd scatters away, and he falls down on his knees. Greek word there is proskuneo. It's the same word we use for worship. He gets down on his knees before Jesus, and you can tell from the way Matthew uses this terminology that his heart before Christ is this. He sees him for who he is, which is why in the very next statement, he calls him Lord. He knows Christ is Messiah. And then, as Lord, no demands no begging, a complete act of devotion to him. He surrenders himself into the Christ's hands. Jesus could have said no. He doesn't beg. He doesn't say, please, please, please. Nothing like that. He falls down on his feet. He worships him, and he acknowledges that God has ultimate control. And in his statement, the implication is obvious. He would like to be healed, but there's no demand. This leper is prepared to hear Jesus say, I am not willing. And he's prepared to accept that. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Not please clean me, not please heal me, but whatever you do, you can do this. Now, the next verse is very significant. Verse 3 says, if you look, Jesus, two phrases here, stretched out his hand, number one, and touched him, number two, okay? Matthew wants you to see this. He stretched out his hand and he touched him. Now, all throughout the book of Matthew, it will repeatedly say that Jesus would touch people and he would heal them, or it would say that he would stretch out his hand and heal people. You use one of those two expressions. Nowhere else in the entire book of Matthew are these two expressions brought together in one sentence. What Matthew wants you to see here is right after he comes off the mountain, after he's preached to the masses, the individual comes to him that ordinarily would be shunned and outcast from society, and Jesus reaches out and touches him. For a man that has not been allowed to be touched for who knows how long. That in and of itself would be an incredible act of mercy, just to be touched. And of course, Jesus goes on and he says, I will, I do desire to heal you. Be clean. Now, what is the problem here? You got a leper who's clearly a worshiper. He loves God he worships God, and then you have Jesus who's capable of performing miracles and healing people. Now, one of the reasons why Jesus does this, one of the reasons he performs miracles is to demonstrate his power and his glory so that others will worship him, so that they will place their faith in him. Now, Jesus says he's willing to heal the leper, but what is the leper's spiritual need? 
He's a worshiper. He surrendered himself into the hands of Christ. He doesn't have a need for a miracle in order to believe. The sense is very clear from the text that he already believes. Now, Jesus says, I am willing be clean. He heals him. But why? You see, there are two components to who we are as people. There's a spiritual side of us, and there is a physical side of us. We talk a lot about the need for helping people. All the time, we talk about how we need to perform this type of ministry. We need to engage in that type of ministry. We need to help people. And it's always in the abstract, okay? But people are actual flesh and blood. They're actual individuals. And so a lot of times, we engage in this sort of discussion where we say we want to help people because in our souls, in our hearts, we can spiritually identify the value and the worth and the dignity that people have before God. There's a spiritual side of it, and we recognize that, and so we talk about it, but then there's the physical side of it where we actually have to get up, get on our feet, and go and do the actual ministry, loving people face-to-face. For example, we talk a lot about the family. Families are big in this church. We need to minister to families. We need to minister to people with children. God, one of the institutions upon which all of human civilization is built upon is the family. In fact, the family was established before the church was established. We talk about that. We can do Bible studies on that. We acknowledge that. We say, yes, this is true. God values the family. And then it comes time to actually do some ministry for families. And do we actually do ministry for the families? And what's it like to minister to families who have significant needs? Troubled children. Maybe they're poor. Maybe they need money just to buy groceries for Thanksgiving or Christmas Eve. Maybe then it comes time to a point in our lives where we have to say, if I'm going to minister to this family, I physically, out of my own checkbook, I'm going to have to sacrifice to meet their needs. And when we talk about the family in the abstract, well, we always have these wonderful ideas of the family. The family is this wonderful, amazing institution that God has built and established the whole of society and civilization upon it, and, and it's wonderful. And our abstract concept of family never results in a group of people that will take your money and walk away without so much as saying, thank you. Our, our abstract concept of family would never do that. Only a real family could actually do that. And so we're happy to talk about the abstract, but then when we encounter the real, well, you see, we can make the abstract idea of a family whomever we want them to be. You see, it's easy to love whatever we define this thing as, but a real family, a real family is different than your abstract concept or the poor. You see, it's easy to talk about the need to minister to the poor. After all, the poor would never do anything like take your money and spend it on lottery tickets or take your money and buy cigarettes or take your money and go buy alcohol. The the poor would never do that. The poor are these hapless individuals that have fallen down on their luck in life and we need to minister to them. And, And so the poor would never actually abuse, use and abuse our mercy. No, only the real poor would do that. And so Jesus preaches this sermon on the mount, and it sounds wonderful, and it sounds great, and it sounds amazing and powerful. 
And as we preach through it and as we read through it and as we think about it, we think, yes, I will obey this. I will honor this. I will do the things Jesus is talking about in the abstract. But now what happens when we meet the actual individual face to face? And that person cannot be whomever we define them to be in our own heads. And what happens when that person is actually the lowest of the low? as somebody that we actually would rather have nothing to do with. Will we be faithful to reach out and touch those people? Because if Jesus is our example, that's exactly what he did. He touched the lowest of the low. He had mercy on the most diseased of all diseased. See, it's easy to love people as people in this sort of abstract concept. What that really needs to boil down into is loving people personally, individually. The leper's real need here is not to be cured of his leprosy. The real miracle here is not that Jesus cures the leper of his leprosy. The real miracle here is what Jesus wants the leper to do, having been cleansed of his leprosy. Look with me, verse 4. Leper's cured. Does he run away, screaming and shouting for joy? Yes, that's all I needed. Thanks, I'm out. I'll see you. Why did he want to be cleansed in the first place? Look at what Jesus says, verse 4. See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded. Look at the last phrase there. For a proof to them. For a proof to them. Now, it says a proof to them. It's in the plural. In this passage so far, we have encountered four individuals, four groups, I should say. You've got the crowd, you've got Jesus, you've got the leper, and you've got the priest. Jesus is singular person, priest is singular person, leper is singular person. When Jesus says, go to the priest and offer the sacrifices as a proof to them, whom is he talking about there? Can't be talking about the priest, because the priest is going to inspect this guy, he's going to see it, he's going to know it for what it is. The priest doesn't have to perform this act of, of uh, you know, cleansing, this, offer up these sacrifices that are required for himself. He's going to see it with his own eyes, he's going to know it's true, and then he's going to go through the ritual. It can't be for Jesus, because Jesus doesn't need it. He's already reached out and touched this guy and healed him. The leper doesn't need it, because, man, he's just had his nose magically grow back right before his very eyes. He's had his fingers pop back on. He knows he's healed. He suddenly can feel a tingling sensation in his body, where before he felt nothing. He knows he's healed, which leaves only one other person, one other group, the crowd, the audience, the people who are gathered there. So Jesus says to him, don't say anything to anyone. He comes through the crowd, the crowd crowd parts, Jesus touches him, he heals him. Immediately Jesus says, here's what you do next. Don't say anything to anybody. The whole crowd is watching this. They've seen it. His instructions to the leper are, go to the priest, offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded as a proof to all of them. All of these people gathered here. 
And so the leper would get up and he would go down to Jerusalem. Remember, they're in Galilee, so he's got about a three and a half day journey south. He's going to go from Galilee to Jerusalem. He's going to go into the temple and he's got a series of sacrifices he's got to offer. Now, whether you're a rich man or whether you're a poor man, there are a couple of different options here. You can sacrifice lambs or you can sacrifice doves depending upon your financial means. Now, the the basic point of it is that there are three types of sacrifices he has to offer. Number one, there's a trespass offering. Number two, there's a sin or a guilt offering that he has to make. And then number three, there's a burnt offering he has to make. Trespass offering deals with when you sin against God. You intrude upon the holy things of God, and you need to make yourself right before the Lord. You offer a trespass offering. Sin offering or guilt offering is when you sin against one of your fellow Israelites. The commandments, don't steal, don't lie, don't murder. Whenever you violate any of those commandments and you sin against your neighbors or your family members, that's a sin offering. A burnt offering paid special attention to the inner part of the animal. Had a lot of requirements for the way you cut the animal and the way you cut it apart. Specifically, you wanted to burn the whole animal, completely consume it, including the innards. And the significance of the burnt offering, what you were saying to God through the burnt offering was that you were giving all that you were to God. And so you would go to the priest, you would atone for any wrong you may have committed against God, number one. You'd atone for any wrong you may have committed against the other people in the community. And number three, you would perform a sacrifice which symbolized your total devotion to the Lord. In this process, the priest would look you over make sure that you were completely healed. He would take some of the blood from the offering. He would dip his finger in it. He would touch your right ear, put the blood on your right ear. Then he would take your right thumb, dip that in the blood. Then he would take your right toe, and he would dip that in the blood. Then the priest would take a flask of oil, widely seen to have medicinal healing properties. He would take the oil, he would pour some of it into his hand, he would dip his finger in that oil in his left hand, and with his right finger, touch your right ear, where the blood has dried. He would put oil over the dried blood on your right ear, it would dry. He would put oil over the blood on your right thumb, it would dry, and he would put oil over the dried blood on your right toe, and it would dry. And whenever you see a man walking through the crowd with dried blood and oil on his ear, dried blood and oil on his thumb, and dried blood and oil on his toe, you know from head to toe the man is cleansed and covered by the blood of the sacrifice, and as a result, he is now healed. The priest the man that stands before God has certified this. So if you were a leper, if you were unclean, you now could walk into any community room, any synagogue, any temple place. You could go and be reunited with your people. You could see your wife again. You could hug your children again. And when you come in, they see this on you. They know, they know, number one, God healed you. Number two, you have offered 
all of the sacrifices necessary to making yourself right with God. Jesus cleanses the leper, but the real spiritual need of the leper, he needs to be back with his family. And he needs to be back with the people of God worshiping in the temple of God. And the only one that can bring that, pre- that leper back in is the priest. But the blood and the oil is a proof for the community. Jesus heals the leper for the purpose of the leper being reunited with the community. We have come here today to celebrate communion. In all of this discussion, in all of this discussion, what we have seen here is that when Jesus performs miracles, his desire is to come face to face with sin, to come face to face with disease, with sickness to touch them, to physically touch them for the purposes of them, the leper in particular, to be reunited with their family. What that should mean to you and to me is that we need to be touched. Listen. You need to be a part of the people of God so that the people of God can love you and touch you. Too often as we go through the life, we think that we think that we can do it all on our own. We think basically, I don't need anybody, I'm fine, I believe in Jesus, okay, I've got my, my card stamped, so to speak, and I'm going to heaven. It's fine. I've checked it all off. I've trusted in Jesus. I'm fine. I don't need to be a part of the church. I don't need people loving me. I don't need to be a part of a community. I might go every once in a blue moon, but I don't actually need to be a part of this. And if I do go on a Sunday, and if I do go to a life group particularly, that's like a bonus. That's like an extra. You know, I I don't really need that stuff. I'm just, you know, doing a little extra here and there. The truth is you do need it. You need to be touched by God's people. You need to be a part of God's family. Leprosy symbolizes our estrangement. And what Christ shows us is that his sacrifice entirely is for the sake of bringing us together. The gospel says that we need. Christians say, I needed once upon a time, but now I'm good. Listen, true spirituality always needs. And can I just tell you, it's okay to need. It's okay to be weak. It's okay to say, I need people to love me. Not only is it okay, it's necessary. And if you say that you don't, trust me, you really do. And the only one that believes that is you. We need each other in this room. We need Christ. And together, we need to pursue Christ. That's the significance of this text. Fyodor Dostoevsky, in his book, The Brothers Karamazov, a few paragraphs later, Father Zosima, speaking to this woman who said, I can't love people in particular, 
I can love humanity in general, but not in particular. He makes this statement. She continues to pester him, say, is there any other advice you have for me besides just trying to go out and love people individually? He says, no. I'm sorry that I cannot say anything to you more comforting than this. For active love is a harsh and fearful thing when compared to love in dreams. Love in dreams thirsts for immediate action, quickly performed with everyone watching. Indeed, it will go as far as the giving of one's own life, so far as others are there to see it. And provided that it does not take too long, but it is soon over, as on a stage, as in a performance, with everyone looking on and praising you. But active love is labor and perseverance, and for some people, perhaps, a whole science. But I predict that even in that very moment when you see with horror that despite all your best efforts, you not only have not come nearer your goal, but seem to have gotten further from it, at that very moment, I predict this to you, you'll reach your goal and will clearly behold over you the wonder-working power of the Lord when you choose to love people that are hard to love. People that are hard to love, you need to be loved. People that have a hard time loving people, you need to start loving people. And all of us together can find the resources for this in Christ. Peter makes the statement years after Christ left this earth. In 1 Peter 1.22, he says, Having purified or cleansed your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That is the grand total of everything that Jesus died in order to make us. Let's bow for a word of prayer.